Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg, Steve Hayes, and David French. We will start with the latest out of Ukraine, move to what's happening on Capitol Hill around the gun debate, and finally, a preview of the January 6th hearings starting in just a few days. Let's dive right in. Steve, obviously starting with you, President Zelensky of Ukraine saying that Russia now controls one fifth of Ukrainian territory. Obvious question, is the tide turning? Yeah, I think the tide really is turning. Uh, David had a terrific newsletter uh, about this earlier this week uh, in which which was sort of a, um, you know, the proverbial shaking of people by the lapels to to crystallize what we have been seeing in news reports over the, the last several weeks, talking to people who are around uh, the Pentagon and who are following this very closely, uh, looking at what the Biden administration is doing, what the Biden administration still could do. There is this sense that uh, Russia's gradually winning. Um, they are finding success militarily. They are at least sort of fighting to a um, uh, a tie in their own domestic political battles and that the world is losing interest in what's happening in Ukraine. And that's as much a problem as anything if you're looking at something that, that looks to be a, you know, the proverbial war of attrition. David, uh, picking up where Steve just left off, a chart about social media interactions on stories about Ukraine, February 27th hits a high of about 17 million. Today, it's about 300,000. Is that having a real effect on the ground? I don't think it's having an effect on the ground because it's not like social media interactions are meaning more weapons are flowing in, more or fewer weapons are flowing into Ukraine. Well, they could. It, over time. But as of yeah. right now, that's not the case. As of right now, you know, the American military commitment is pretty darn robust. It's the overtime part that I'm concerned about. And it's always been the overtime part that I've been concerned about after that initial victory. Because the thought was the initial victory of Ukrainian forces in the north of the country. Because I think the thought was, well, we just exposed, Ukraine just exposed the weakness of the Russian army. And that... Um, you know, Vladimir Putin miscalculated terribly. And all of those things are true. And Russia's, you know, the cream of the Russian military is in ruins outside of Kiev. Eh, maybe uh, a lot of it was. Um, all of that could be true. And none of it means the war was over. None of it meant that Russia wouldn't double down as Russia so often has done throughout its history. And that's exactly what it did, is it went and it doubled down and it attacked on a, a more narrow front in a more militarily sound and prudent way. And, you know, the latest figures indicate from Zelensky and, you know, take all figures from combatants with a grain of salt, as we said in the morning dispatch today, a hundred, a hundred Ukrainian soldiers are dying a day right now, a day. And if you've got a hundred lost a day, then how many are being wounded in a day? And just to put that in perspective, at the height of the Iraq war, if we were losing 100 soldiers in a month, in a month, that was a high casualty rate for us, a very high casualty rate for us. And here they are 
a country a fraction of our size losing 100 a day. And then if you look at the weaponry that we're supplying, all of it is defensive and reactive. So everything is designed to try to blunt the Russian advance. Well, if the Russian advance grinds on kilometer by kilometer and the Ukrainian forces are being ground down 100 soldiers by 100 soldiers, what's the plan here? You know, what, what is it that we are going to do to assist the Ukrainians in turning the tide? And I think that that's the real question at this moment is, are we entirely consent, content with this war of attrition and trying to stalemate Russia as much as possible and limit its gains? Or, do, or is there a plan beyond that? Because there's, if there's not a plan beyond that, I'm not sure the attrition plan is ultimately uh, one that is good for Ukrainians. Uh, I'm not sure that it's one that's ultimately uh, good for, you know, the, a, a, a sustained conflict. Um, and it's certainly not one that will reverse any real great gains on the ground. You know, I think we got a glimpse of, of, of some of the, the challenges um, within the Biden administration in this debate over these high mobility artillery rocket systems over the past couple of weeks. I mean, you've you've had the Biden administration trying to extract this promise from uh, a public promise, apparently, that they wanted from the Ukrainians that they, they wouldn't use these um, this artillery to strike inside of Russia's borders. And while you can certainly understand why the Biden administration would be interested in looking to avoid anything that creates the appearance of an escalation, this is, I think, yet another example of their being overly cautious on this stuff. And it reflects, frankly, what we're seeing, what we're hearing about the debates taking place inside the administration. Um, you know, they basically wanted Zelensky to say, we won't strike inside Russian territory. Zelensky says this, um, that apparently was uh, a precondition for, for the provision of this weaponry, but it, it speaks to the sort of caution that we're seeing from the Biden administration. While the Biden administration, I think, has gotten bipartisan praise from people, from elected officials who are supportive of the broader Ukraine effort. I think if you talk to people at the Pentagon and people who are very closely monitoring the progress of the war on the ground, many of them will tell you we need to be doing more and we need to be doing it faster. And I think this is a this gives you some indication of where things could go. Jonah, it feels like domestically. Uh Obviously, American news is still covering what's going on in Ukraine, but the actual political conversation has already moved on. Whether it's Uvalde or baby formula or just inflation in general, nobody thinks at this point that the Biden administration's handling of Ukraine is moving votes one way or another for the Democratic Party. And so then the question becomes, what's the incentive for them to prioritize this? Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, and I, I say this with some sympathy for the Biden administration and an enormous amount of sympathy for Ukraine. In some ways, this is the worst possible scenario politically for domestic purposes, because here we have President Biden, who is beset by challenges that would bedevil any president, to be sure. But they have a particular political resonance because he seems like he's not up to the job. He seems kind of overwhelmed, out of touch, ill-served by staff. 
things are spiraling out of control and because of his age or whatever, he doesn't seem like he's up to the job. Inflation is a particularly pro- big problem like that because there's very little a president can do to fight inflation, but presidents get all the blame for inflation. And inflation is one of these things that, as we've talked about previously on here, makes people feel like the world is spiraling out of control. Gas lines do that too. Missing baby forma, formula does not necessarily keep a lot of moms on an even keel. And, um, and so then you have the situation in Ukraine looking like it's going to descend into a quagmire on the eastern side where Ukraine can't, look, I mean, Ukraine can't let 20% of its territory just be taken. I mean, that's, that's 10 U.S. states. I mean, I understand the square miles might be different, but it's <laughs> in principle that you, know, you just can't. Mileage may vary. Yeah, but like, you know, uh, objects in mirror may seem larger than they appear, whatever. But the, um, uh, and so you're going to start to see an insurrection in the co- Russian-controlled areas um, that's going to be ugly. That's going to fuel Russian propaganda efforts about how this is terrorism, not, not war. Um, and because we don't have troops there, Biden has sort of ownership, but very little control over how events proceed. And it, it, you can see how it's going to, or could sort of melt into this larger narrative of the incredible shrinking presidency, which comes up for lots of presidents, or how Biden, you know, he can he can say all the things he wants. Like gun control. I mean, like the we're going to get to that in a second. But mass shootings are another one of these things that make people feel like the world is out of control. And you know, he can turn all the dials he wants in the Oval Office. They actually don't move anything, any objects on the ground. And um, and so you're going to have a foreign policy situation that is going to mirror the domestic policy situation. The theme of which is. This guy's not up to it. Events are spiraling out of his ability to control them. And that's a that's a bad look for an 80-year-old guy. All right, David, some specifics now when we talk about domestic policy. White House Economic Council Director Brian Deese said just this morning, uh, yesterday morning, sorry, um, that basically prices are up $1.50 per gallon since Putin began amassing troops on the Ukraine border because Russia's supply of energy is off the market saying that the U.S. economy has a lot of strength, but uh, that, in fact, gas prices in particular are being driven up by Putin and, uh, you know, trying to deflect some of that domestic pressure on Biden to what's happening in Ukraine. A, is that accurate? And B, does it have any resonance? I mean, in the gas price context, I it's accurate. I mean, there's an impact. I, we don't know exactly how much of an impact, but there's definitely an impact. I don't think there's an impact on bacon. Um, and that's what I'm hearing from people is not just gas prices. It's bacon prices. It's, I think, didn't we talk about that on advisory opinions, bacon, milk? Um, you know, I'm not, I mean, my issue with it is like if gas prices were going up beforehand, then you can't simply measure the gas price that has increased since Putin invaded Ukraine. You have to measure the delta between how it was going up before and what additional amount it's gone up since Putin invaded Ukraine. And that might be hard to do because it's not going to go up evenly, et cetera. Um, but simply saying like, no, we measure from this point, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I'm with Jonah that it's not that I'm blaming Biden for all of this. 
No, I mean, it's gone up some because of Putin, but it's a woefully insufficient explanation for inflation more broadly. And the inflation problem more broadly was hitting us well before the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And everybody knows that. I mean, this is this is something we were talking about well before February 24th when Russia launched its attack. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this before. I've talked about this before. It isn't that any one thing here that is causing our real sense of national concern. It is there are multiple things that make us feel like something is out of control, that there are things are out of control, that this is not quite what America is supposed to be. And it's everything from the supply chain shortages. Americans aren't used to not getting the things that they order for months at a time to inflation. Most Americans who are living now don't remember stagflation in the 1970s. This feels really new to most Americans to war in Ukraine, which, again, we're not used to living in a time of great power war and heightened degree of nuclear concern. All of these things are things that are not in the norm with people's experience living in this country unless you're much older. And add all of those things together, and look, the bottom line is people are going to look at the party in power and say, I don't like the way things are. And the party in power can say all at once, well, it's not our fault. There's a lot of big tidal forces in play. That just doesn't, fair or not fair, that just doesn't work. I I agree with David entirely on the substance and the political point. Just a modest pushback. While I think it's true right now that the price of bacon isn't necessarily tied to all of this, this summer the price of bacon is going to be tied to all this because the lack of fertilizer because of the Russia's, Russia's number one fertilizer exporter, you need natural gas and all these things for fertilizer. The price of diesel for bringing pigs to market is going to be a big deal. The biggest deal is the price, like a huge share of the corn and a lot of, uh, and, 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 you know, uh, and sunflower seeds and all these kinds of things. Um, there are all sorts of energy costs and fertilizer costs that go into that. And the, um, the amount of money and costs that go into feeding livestock crops is enormous. And when the price of those crops goes up, the price of the pigs go up. China also had to kill a bunch of pigs because of swine flu. Anyway, it's this bizarre perfect storm of how you see real knock-on effects in in global commodities that, uh, again, underscores the point that it's... Biden doesn't deserve all the blame for it, but in a context where he deserves enough blame of a lot of things, like pulling out of Afghanistan and lying to us about, you know, uh, um, uh, inflation being transitory and doing student loan things, which they said, um, you know, uh, a year ago were intended to stimulate the economy by putting more money in the economy. And now they're saying they'll be, they won't affect inflation. They're just wrong footed. In every way, and whether it's their fault or not, it's it's their problem. And and a quick point on the politics of all this, I think uh, David's point is well taken. The other reason that I think this will matter is is not just this sense that this feels unprecedented to so many people. We can't, you know, you can't get what you want. This is a, this is an America that's been used to getting Amazon Prime stuff within two days for for a couple of years. For and the Democrats years. want to get rid of Amazon Prime. Just by the way, oh, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> true. The, 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 the new the new moves to get rid of Amazon Prime, um, but it's it's not just that it's this 
feeling that we we Americans don't have to do this. We, this is not what we're used to. It's also the promises that Biden made to return things to normal. I mean, that was yeah. one of the main takeaways of his campaign was that we've had this anomalous period for the past few years. Things were sort of crazy and I can bring the, the normal back and he's failing. Yeah, I wrote a whole piece uh, newsletter a month or so ago called Can't Anything Be Normal for Just Five Minutes? And hitting that, that theme that if you run on normal, you got to kind of deliver normal. <laughs> and normal isn't entirely in the president's control, of course, but you know the contradiction between this sort of return to normalcy and what we're enduring right now is pretty dramatic. And Steve, last question on this, just because I'm curious. Russia's foreign ministry says it is summoning the heads of U.S. media outlets left in Moscow, several of them, of course, have pulled out, to a meeting on Monday. Um, <laughs> the heads of the Moscow offices of all American media will be invited to the press center of the Russian foreign ministry to explain to them the consequences of their government's hostile line in the media sphere, meaning to basically tongue lash them for what the American government is doing to Russian media in the United States. I'm just curious what your take, Steve, is from a journalism perspective on the outlets that decided to stay in Russia despite Russia's law that introduced a 15-year prison sentence for journalists spreading, quote, intentionally fake news about what it calls its special military operation in Ukraine to denazify Ukraine. Um, you know, is it good that some media folks have stayed there? What about this meeting? Is it now time to pull out the rest? How do you think of it? Again, just from a, like a private yeah. journalism perspective, not American government. Yeah, I mean, I think these are, these are uh, you know, among the most difficult questions that people who run journalism organizations have to deal with, right? How do you report from North Korea when you know that any reporting of the truth can get your people tossed from the country, sort of best case scenario, or killed? Um, I think that's what a lot of these organizations were wrestling with, with the passage of this law. We've seen some of the organizations that remained be able to report reasonably effectively on what's happening in in Russia, on the ground in Russia. I mean, we've, we've read stories about, um, you know, protests throughout the country uh, about what, what the Putin government is doing. We've, um, we've seen stories out of St. Petersburg about rallies. Um, so they've done, I think, an effective job of helping the American public and sort of the global public understand what's, what's going on there. And you know, I, th I think if you have the resources, the preferences to stay and to test the law, the challenge is you stay and test the law and it's it's arbitrary. I mean, look at the charges that have been trumped up against uh, Navalny and, and other Russian opposition figures. You can imagine that it wouldn't take much to get you thrown into jail for 15 years. So I think on balance, it's good that they stay. I don't think any of them are likely to be persuaded by the arguments they hear in this in this meeting next week. All right, next topic, uh, the gun control debate. Uh, there's this fascinating chart in the New York Times looking at ballot and initiative referendums in four states from 2016. Because we look at issue polling on guns and it's, you know, 80, 90 percent 
support, for instance, expanded background checks. Sarah, now, we'll do you into- like issue polling? I How do you don't. Feel? How do you feel about I issue polling? hate <laughs> issue polling, and I feel so yeah. vindicated in an awful way right now um, because the topic is terrible. But, but uh, progressives and the left have constantly pointed to eighty percent, ninety percent of the American people support this, but it's the gun lobby or it's um, you know people who are single issue voters on Second Amendment rights, for instance. And the New York Times did an actually a great job, and I'll put it in the show notes, um, totally debunking that. So looking at these four states' referendums from 2016, expected support based on issue polls in California, 91%, Washington, 81%, Nevada, 86%, Maine, 83%. Actual support from voters? 63, 59, 50, and 48 Hillary Clinton fared better at the ballot box than expanded background checks in the same states, most on the same day, among the same voters. This wasn't single-issue voters. Oh, and it's worth noting, the supporters of the initiatives outspent the uh, Second Amendment gun rights groups. So it's not money. It's not single-issue voters. It's what? it, And so then you're left with a few options, right? Is it that issue polling is totally useless? Is it that people are just saying something different to a pollster? Or is it, and this is like maybe my pet thing, um, expanded background checks doesn't mean anything when you ask someone that. It just sounds nice. But when you actually have to write down what that means and people think about it, then they have a different feeling about it than simply being asked on a telephone call when they're making dinner. So David, starting with you, on the politics of what's happening, the negotiations on the Hill. And I've said this over and over again, but if you're betting in Washington, bet for the status quo, which is that nothing will happen. Even so, this does feel like a moment, whether it's a moment that leads to something or not, it's a moment. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about a moment on Capitol Hill, I'm dubious, (laughs) I'm dubious. If we're talking about a moment outside of Capitol Hill, I think there's more it, there's there, there's more room there. So if you look at uh, Florida after Parkland, Florida after Parkland raised the age of purchasing a rifle to 21 and implemented red flag laws. Red flag laws proliferated across blue America after Parkland. This is something that actually changed on the ground um, in state after state after state to the point where you have 19 states plus DC with a red flag law. So is there something that could happen on the ground in the states? Yeah, I I also think there is a window right now for some limited reform, uh, and potentially around the red flag issue in Washington. And then now, don't don't laugh, everybody, if people are smart about it, which I just just probably cut out any possibility that this could happen. Um, because the question is, how much do people want the issue, having read all that issue polling and thinking, well, this is our thing now? Um, whereas I think if you look at, say, for example, the fact that there was a bill introduced last year, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott introduced it with Angus King. And oh, goodness, I'm blanking on who the Democrat was. But you had a bill introduced, bipartisan bill introduced in the Senate in 2021. You have multiple GOP senators on record saying 
They're open to red flag laws that would have provided DOJ grant programs and DOJ grants and, and incentives for states adopting red flag laws. Then I think you've got a chance to actually do something. Instead, I, I worry that we're going to bog down in the same menu, the exact same menu of gun control measures that not only have failed politically, but look, and, and we can put this in show notes, there's a Rand Corporation study of studies um, that looks at all kind that looked at 18 different um, gun control policies. And here's what they found. We find no qualifying studies showing that any of the 18 policies we investigated decreased mass shootings. Now, nine of the policies, there just weren't any studies that met their criteria for rigor. And these included some newer ideas like red flag laws. But for nine of the policies, the studies that did, they, there were studies that qualified under rigor, uh, their, to RAND's, corporate, uh, RAND's status for, you know, appropriate rigor and quality. And that included expanded background checks. That includes bans on assault weapons and high capacity magazines. That includes waiting periods. That includes age requirements. There was no evidence that they decreased mass shootings. They were in, it was all inconclusive there. It wasn't, the, the evidence just wasn't there. And so here's your problem. You're going back to the same well where people are up on this debate, no, you're trying to Im- engineer a change where there's no real evidence that it will fix the problem that we have. And that's, I'm sorry that, you know, as a, as a political matter, as a policy matter, I've, I've got problems with that. All right. So President Biden gave a speech last night um, in primetime, primetime address. And I don't know. I'm curious about your thoughts, Jonah. Um, part of the reason that I think we haven't gotten anything done legislatively on gun control is because folks try to do sort of kitchen sink gun bills instead of just doing one at a time, see how many you can get through. Cause I promise you can get some through that way. But when you try to do these, you know, large amorphous, uh, bills, people get uncomfortable. They're not quite sure what's in the details. And the negotiations are going on on the Hill. John Cornyn, not Susan Collins, not Lisa Murkowski, is leading the negotiations for the Republicans. A conservative senator from Texas, a gun-toting state, if I may say so, uh, and in Republican leadership. Uh, and yet, Joe Biden gives this speech that I thought, if anything, will actually derail the negotiations. It certainly, I don't think, will move them forward at all. Uh, he blames Republicans several times. He gives a laundry list that he wants in any bill, basically giving marching orders to Democrats not to do a piecemeal approach. Why? Why, Jonah? And did you have a different take on the speech? No, I mean, I, to be honest, I only watch excerpts of it because um, I, I, if I have to hear him talk one more time about how deer don't wear Kevlar, um, I'm going to lose it. Um, and that's part of the, I mean, that points to a larger problem with Biden is he's been talking about this stuff for so long. He falls back on the same jokes and lines and mischaracterizations that, that most Americans aren't paying attention to, but the, it antagonizes the pro second amendment side enormously because <laughs> they are paying attention to it. Um, more broadly, I got to say, the, the, I, I think he's doing it because they're looking for any messaging environment for the midterms that helps them. And they think that, 
you know, Rui Teixeira has written some interesting stuff about this, about how they have this misguided view of the suburbs and they think pivoting to guns and abortion will win the suburbs for them um, when the data is not at all um, persuasive that that's, that's obvious, at least. I, I got to say, the, the guy I've been surprisingly impressed by has been Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who used to be, as by his own admission, far more strident, far more let's get the biggest possible um, comprehensive legislative legislative thing through uh, imaginable. And now his argument, I think, is, you know, I mean, you have to strip it of some of the partisan stuff, is the right argument, or at least the right, it points to the right strategy for Democrats, which is to go for small ball as best you can to, in part, because that'll get passed, because Republicans want to be able to say they passed something. But also, and I know when I say small ball, I don't necessarily mean insignificant. I just mean the low-hanging fruit that people can generally agree upon. Um, and also, if you can get, his point is, if you can get Republicans to vote on something that is mildly restrictive of gun rights or is not preferred by the hardcore sort of purists on this stuff, and you can demonstrate that they don't pay a terrible political price for it, that that is the path towards better legislation down the road. Now, I might disagree with him what how he would define good legislation, you know, um, on guns, or I might not. It devil's in the details. But right now, whether it's true or not, a lot of Republicans believe they can't vote for anything that restricts, that can be cast as restricting gun rights with, for fear that they'll lose a primary. And if you can actually dispel that belief by getting a few Republicans to vote on this stuff without paying a price, it changes the conversation going forward. Um, it doesn't solve the problem or anything like that. But part of the problem is that both parties now are so invested in political strategies about not being bipartisan. I mean, look, I mean, when was the last time Biden used the word bipartisan to talk about his bipartisan accomplishments, whether it was the aid to Ukraine or the bipartisan infrastructure bill? They don't want to talk about bipartisanship because it's a dirty word on each side because both sides think the other side is the devil. But that's actually the way to get out of this logjam is, you know, when logjams break, it's usually little pieces that go off first and um, um, that make room for the bigger pieces. And Murphy's talking about that. He's saying nice things about Cornyn and the, his fellow Repo and the Republican negotiators, even though I've seen him on MSNBC many times being basically begged to denounce them as not... A, negotiating in good faith. And I think it's a smart strategy. Whether it succeeds in the long run, I don't know. Steve, um, the politics of this have remained fascinating in part because it feels like both sides talk past each other like so many issues that we have in our country right now. And I think, Jonah, was it you who talked about the abortion lobby, that we don't talk about the abortion lobby, but we talk about the gun lobby? So I went back and looked at how much each side spends actually on candidates, not on lobbying for a second, but on, on supporting candidates and campaigns, because obviously that's sort of my wheelhouse. Uh, in 2020, Planned Parenthood spent $45 million. Uh, the NRA spent 14. It's not even close. But to your point, the left seems to believe that this is a, a money issue from the gun rights side. And there's just, at this point, no real evidence that the NRA uh, has a significant political grounding that it's actually voters 
that there's just enough people out there who care about this issue. And that's persuading uh, a majority of Republicans not to move forward on some of this stuff. Similar, by the way, to abortion. It's not that Planned Parenthood gives money to these candidates and that's why they support abortion. Planned Parenthood gives them money because they support abortion, because their constituents support abortion. Um, at the same time, uh, the the gun rights voters, there's often the slippery slope argument. It's not that I object to this. It's that this could lead to X, Y, and Z. And, and then we just end up in this stalemate, Steve. What does it matter, I guess? If, if David says that none of these things will actually make a difference in mass shootings and nobody seems to care about the number of people dying from suicides, violent crime on the street, you know, yes, the president mentioned this last night, the number one cause of death for children in the United States last year, now mind you, it was during COVID, was gun violence. But not gun violence at schools. If you average it out since Columbine, seven children a year or staff are killed at school per year. Now, mind you, that's seven too much. But 120 are killed in transportation-related issues getting to school per year on average. What, one quick thing on that. That's a bit of a misleading stat because it includes 19-year-olds and 18-year-olds. For, for the driving? No, for the shooting. Like oh, the, for the gun shooting. violence. Yeah, it's like yeah. gang stuff. Yeah. It's including, it's including adults and they're saying children, legal adults and they're saying children. You mean, wait, sorry, on which statistic? The, the, that gun violence or that guns are the leading cause of death oh, for oh, children. I got you. But not yeah. the seven children a year killed at school. Right, right, right. No, the, the, the 120 the, in transportation. No, the, the 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 one that says that it's the most, uh, the leading cause of death for kids. Yeah. That, inclu- that study includes 19-year-olds. <laughs> Fair. Um, so, Steve, if nothing's going to stop mass shootings, maybe. But we still have a gun problem in this country and a gun violence problem in this country. Why is it that we can't rally around making suicide um, not as easy or just regular gun violence. And the only thing we can talk about is whether this individual piece of legislation could prevent a mass shooting at a school or a grocery store or a Walmart. Maybe that's not the point. Yeah. I mean, I I like to think that we'll eventually get back to a politics where we, and by we, I mean our elected officials make decisions based on the efficacy of policy. Um, I'm not sure we're there right now, um, so I don't know that that's, I think it's a very interesting, the, the rant is very interesting that, that David cites and it, you know, it corresponds with, I think what we've, what we've learned from these debates over the past, uh, many years, or at least that what we've seen on these other, uh, policies or attempts at limited policy interventions. Um, but I, th- I think, you know, to, to go back to the original point, you know, the, the, the New York times article that you mentioned at the outset, Sarah, is, is really important. I mean, and we talked about this last week and, and I noticed that it got, uh, a fair amount of discussion in the comments about both our sense that the, the voters were really the explanation here and that, that the NRA, uh, was seeing diminishing power. And I just want to read a quick paragraph from that New York times piece, uh, by Nate Cohn. He says, There have been countless explanations offered about why political reality seems so at odds with the polling, including the power of the gun lobby, the importance of single issue voters and the outsized influence of rural states in the Senate. But there's another possibility, one that might be the most sobering for all of all for gun control supporters. Their problem could also be 
the voters, not just politicians and special interests. And I think that's, he's arrived at a sort of a fundamental truth there. I think that is the best explanation for, for the reluctance we see of Republicans to, to engage on this in some say, uh, in some sense. And, um, and the concern about the, the slippery slope arguments that, that you mentioned. There's reporting um, today as it relates to the power of the, the NRA from our friend Stephen Gutowski at The Reload, um, who points out that NRA attendance at this annual meeting uh, week before last was the worst in 16 years. So was participation in the NRA board elections this year. NRA revenue dropped by almost $50 million in 2021, down $130 million from just three years ago. So you can actually put numbers to the arguments that the NRA doesn't have the influence that it once did. Stephen points out, and I think it's a, it's a good note, that doesn't mean the NRA is not powerful. The NRA is still powerful, still very powerful, but it's not, I think, the, the boogeyman that um, the media and the left for years have made it sort of out to be. Uh, they, they shorthand this, and it's easier for them to explain this you know, bad, big, bad gun lobby in Washington distorting the debate than it is for them to actually have to grapple with the fact that there are a lot of voters who don't want what the progressives are selling in this. So real quick, um, since we're reading from the reload and from the New York times about this idea that it's the voters who shape the GOP agenda on guns. Um, I just want to read a headline from this outfit called, um, let me look the dispatch. (laughs) Um, where this guy Jonah Goldberg wrote, it's voters, not lobbyists, who shape the GOP gun agenda. Um, And one of the things I did is I went and looked. uh, Steve Scalise, according to Open Secrets, was the number one recipient of gun lobby, broadly defined, money um, in the 2020 cycle. And it was not, and money from the gun lobby, uh, however you want to define it, was not even remotely in the top 20 sources of money for Scalise. Um, and yet he's a guy who, even though he was shot in a mass shooting event, says that he's all in on, on second amendment rights. You know, <laughs> it, the, the idea that he's bought and paid for, which if you do Google searches or Nexus Lexus searches for the phrase bought and paid for, when it comes to gun stories, it is amazing how many people just uh, by rote use that phrase as if it explains everything. And, um, um, and like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills a little bit on this debate because I've been writing this piece for years now. We've talked about it a bunch here about how groups like Planned Parenthood and the NRA and a bunch of other groups, including like MSNBC and Fox, right? Just to pick two other examples. Um, there are all these outside players that do party work by proxy that educate voters that mobilize voters that do issue framing and policy framing um, because the parties are too weak to do it themselves. And one of the reasons why the NR, so this thing that looks like the NRA's power has more to do with the fact that the Madisonian structure of how parties are supposed to work, which is that they take members of a coalition who all compromise on what the party's position is so that they get at least half a loaf compared to the other coalition. When the party is so weak, you have these major players like Planned Parenthood and the NRA who take the 100% position and can extort the party to go along with it 
because the party is too weak to negotiate something more reasonable. And so the NRA does more voting, and so does Planned Parenthood, does more, or NARA, or whatever, does more, more party work than the state parties or the federal party does in many circumstances in terms of mobilizing voters, framing issues, educating voters, communicating to them, galvanizing them. And that looks like the NRA owns these politicians when in fact the NRA is mobilizing these voters who own these politicians. And it's a completely different dynamic that gets lost because everyone is married. The left loves all of these sort of Marxist, these quasi-Marxist, cooey bono, you know, oh, they, they're so wrong. They know they're wrong. The only reason they could have a wrong position is because someone is paying them to. And the reality is, is that in, in life, most people have wrong views and wrong positions, honestly, um, <laughs> and not because they have been paid to. There are people, we know people in Washington who've been paid to be wrong, but they're professionals at it. Most normal people are not paid to be wrong. They actually come to their views honestly. All right, let's do a quick preview of the January 6th hearings, which are starting next week. Steve, what is it that you are looking to happen that could actually be meaningful in American politics at this point? I, I think that's the right way to frame it. And it's also sort of a sad way to frame it, right? Because it, it should really matter to us that we have learned since, you know, people witnessed on January 6th, the, the, the greatest manifestation of the attempt by Donald Trump and his advisors to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. We've, we've learned so much more about what was behind that moment. It wasn't this spontaneous outburst of anger and frustration caused by a couple of speeches at the Capitol. It was weeks and weeks of meticulous planning by some of Trump's top people, his top legal advisors, uh, and, and following an attempt to threaten and bully state and local election officials to seat alternative electors, to do everything that they could possibly do to prevent Donald Trump from being pushed out of the White House on January 20th. That's what this is really about. It's not just about the violence of January 6th. And in that sense, the, the naming of the, the committee is, is something of a misnomer. It's really about much more than that. I think we'll learn a lot more than that. The question of whether people will pay attention, I think like so many things in our public life, it'll be it'll be divided. It'll be polarized, right? I mean, you've seen so many people, including many people who were outraged by what happened on January 6th, decide that either they don't want to talk about it for political reasons, because it would complicate the ability of Republicans to take back the House and the Senate, or that they're going to, in some ways, rationalize or justify it, which is even worse. Um, that's, that's a huge problem for our politics. And those people, I think, are likely to be successful. I, I don't expect you'll see a lot of coverage of what's happening on, Jan on the committee and what the committee's uncovered uh, on places like Fox, on in talk radio, uh, conservative websites, because there's been this sort of collective decision that it, it doesn't matter and it shouldn't matter. And this is all partisan um, machinations by Democrats and left-wing media to, to get Republicans. And while I do think that Democrats uh, opened themselves up to accusations of partisan maneuvering 
particularly at the at the founding of the the committee, as we've discussed on this podcast before. I don't think that's primarily what's happened here. The, the bottom line for me is what have we learned since January 6th or since the establishment of the committee? I think it's a very important question. And how much will we see that advanced in these public hearings? We know, for instance, that the committee has conducted thousands and thousands of hours worth of interviews from people who were involved in the attacks, who were involved in the planning, who had a hand in uh, what followed. and. Some of that information has been made public, but much of it hasn't. So what more do we learn about this plot to keep uh, Donald Trump in power? I think it's really, really important, and I fear it will be treated like just another news story. David? I, I have the same concern. It is very, very important. I do feel like it'll be treated like just another news story. But this also taps into something else that I'm seeing more and more, which is politics. I think that it's been pretty remarkable the extent to which I see politicians on the right now exclusively concerned about their media portrayal on the right in right wing media. Nothing else matters. Nothing else. It doesn't. The substance substance of a report from any other mainstream outlet doesn't matter. What matters is how right-wing media portrays them. What matters is what is seen on right-wing media, and that's it. That is that. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why we've seen such Republican indifference at best to the January 6th investigation. It's not just that there are Republicans who have a lot to be concerned about in an investigation into January 6th. It's that there's an awful lot more Republicans who understand that if they're going to focus on January 6th, they're going to pay a cost in right-wing media. And right-wing media dictates their fortunes almost entirely, uh, especially in a heavily, not just heavily gerrymandered, but heavily sorted, the big sort sort of districts. And so the dominance of right-wing media over the, your, your everyday Republican politician I think it's the larger frame hovering over all of this. And it's one reason why they're increasingly indifferent to any other source of news or discussion or commentary or critique about them and their their political career. If it is not bubbling up through Daily Wire, through talk radio, through Fox, through Breitbart, whatever, it's as if it doesn't happen. Jonah, a lot of the media organizations are talking about carrying this live, whether on streaming or on their networks uh, or cable. That almost seems like a mistake to me. (laughs) (laughs) It feels biased, not necessarily in a partisan way, by the way, but in a what is newsworthy way in choosing that this is newsworthy versus uh, perhaps times where some portion of the country thought something else might have been newsworthy for a congressional hearing, and that wasn't getting this kind of coverage. Yeah, I mean, I, I know what you mean. Um, I mean, and I think we can all stipulate that we would be, it would be a healthier country if all of this stuff on the substance was was deemed more newsworthy than it is. Um, that said, I, I think it, this could be a, this could be a disaster for the news networks if 
the January 6th committee doesn't bring the goods in some significant way. Um, and, but I think that disaster is downstream of the calamitous way Congress responded to January 6th a long time on January 8th, essentially, or January 7th. Like, if these had been impeachment hearings, which they should have had for real, with real witnesses and whatnot, within days after January 6th, that absolutely deserves wall-to-wall coverage, primetime, not just on the cable news channels, but broadcast, right? And um, by its just very nature. And part of my criticism of the January 6th committee is that both parties chickened out about doing impeachment the correct way. We talked about this a little bit at the 500th remnant Palooza thing. Um, I had tough words for both McConnell and McCarthy as well as Pelosi about this. And, um, and so if they don't have, I think historians will look at this as one seamless example of elite failure in our politics and in our culture more broadly um, with some people coloring themselves with comparatively more glory than others. But at the, at the, at the fundamental level, this was a failure of leadership. It was a failure of leadership, how they designed the impeachment article after January 6th. It was a failure of leadership about how they conducted that, that proceeding. Um, it was a failure of leadership about how uh, people voted for various partisan reasons on based upon various assumptions that Trump would just wither up and go away. And everyone wanted somebody else to take the grief that they should have taken upon themselves. And, so whatever flaws the January 6th committee will have, and I think it will have many that are very related to all of this, I think some of the partisan Democrats on there are going to be their own worst enemies. Um, um, and the media and the way that it has covered this stuff, I think deserves some uh, uh, blame on here as well. But if they deliver the goods, right, if there is actually new information that um, is shocking and important and significant and yada, 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 um, Everyone will say, well, of course you should have covered these things live and done all that. I just don't know that that's there. I don't know that they're going to bring the goods. And I hope they do, but I don't know. But Sarah, let me ask you this question. Is it, isn't the question, I mean, I, so I, I agree with that as sort of a comment on, on reality as we understand it. But haven't they kind of already brought the goods? I mean, of course, if from a strictly PR perspective, you know, if, if you want to get the word out or you want to get attention to what you're doing, you want to have new information, you want to bring the goods. But if if you're talking about what the committee is producing, I'd say that given what we've seen through leaks and, and statements and other commentary that we've seen from committee members thus far, we've already got the good, like the, what I described at the beginning in the answer to your first question, that's the goods. The goods is this was a much more detailed plot than, than anything else. I'd love to learn more. I think we'll learn more, but isn't, isn't that sort of the, the wrong way to look at it? Well, sure. But then why are the media organizations giving this so much airtime? If we're not going to learn, you know, if we already have the information that we're going to have, is that the standard? Because I feel like I know a lot of people who are uh, you know, think January 6th was terrible and stupid and criminal and all of the words that you want to have. But they're rolling their eyes at the idea that this is now going to get dawn to dusk coverage from a bunch of, you know, cable news outlets. 
Um, because like this has already been covered. They've already said most of what they're going to say. This is now going to be a media spectacle where they try to get attention for it during a hearing and the media organizations are going to play their part in doing that. Sure. I don't look, I mean, far be it for me to suggest that members of Congress are going to do anything, but anything (laughs) but performance. I mean, I think there, there are some serious discussions to be had here. Um, but there's no doubt that a lot of this will be performative and it will be dramatic. And as Jonah suggests, I think Democrats in particular are likely to overplay their hands, overstate their case. We have Adam Schiff on the panel. He's done this. He's done this pretty consistently, I guess for me. And it's different, by the way, when it's an impeachment hearing, I think, because that actually has constitutional repercussions. And even if you think you know how it's going to come out, it is a it is a constitutional mechanism that has been triggered. This is a congressional hearing. It is different. There's tons of them every day. And so you do have to kind of answer the question, why, why this one? And I, you know, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here, if you can't tell, Steve, um, because I'm torn about it myself. I think yeah. that this is a different congressional hearing. Yeah. Um, and I think January 6th was a difference in kind, not just degree. But I take seriously when my friends are rolling their eyes um, that there's something about this that does feel like it's meant to be theater. So let's make it a theater. Yeah. I mean, look, you, you can go back and look at the way that some of the Trump Russia stuff was covered and say a some. lot of some of some of it was meant to be theater. <laughs> no, I do think there were serious questions at, at the heart of some of the Trump Russia stuff. But there's no question that that the media overplayed its hand. I guess I mean, the coverage of the the Mueller investigation as someone who was sitting at DOJ watching the coverage. Right. I, I was stunned. Well, and, and look, you know, part of the pro- part of the problem today is that a lot of the same people who were making um, those comments about the Mueller investigation and what it would produce are literally the same people making comments and predictions about what this is going to do, whether it's Glenn Kirshner, whether it's Adam Schiff, you know, you name it. They're claims that the, the, there will be immediate prosecutions and all the stuff that go way too far. I guess for me, the bottom line is th- this is it, this goes beyond January 6th. January 6th was just the worst public manifestation of what was happening. Let's just say it's a huge deal when the leader of one party who happens to be the president of the United States, also the leader of the free world, tries to block the peaceful transfer of power. And that's what happened here. I mean, the revelations that we've seen related to John Eastman and his activities, to the alternate electors, to the efforts to, to, to threaten the local election workers, have huge implications, not just because in, in sort of a backward-looking way, but because of what we're debating and discussing going into 2022 and 2024. I mean, you have election truthers and, you know, somebody in Doug Mastriano, the Republican governor to be... Uh, the Republican nominee for for governor of Pennsylvania, who was at the January 6th rally, who participated in all of these things, who wants to deregister voters and has in what I think is fairly described as kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod effort suggested that he'd be willing to cheat in 2024. Like these, this has direct practical application to what we're going to be talking about for the next two years and the next four years and whether we can continue to have free and fair elections in the United States. I think that deserves a lot, a lot of coverage. All right. And now for our best segment, not worth your time. This week's not worth your time. It was a close call. Obviously I could have done the Depp herd trial for week number three, 
but it was prevailed upon me that perhaps that was turning into a bit. Uh, so instead, <laughs> first, I have something that is worth your time. The San Diego uh, Zoo's live cams of their baby condor is just a delight. So do check that out. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes for all the baby condor fans out there. It's breeding season, as you all know, obviously, uh, for the condors. So yay for baby condor. Uh, but Steve, in thinking about things that aren't worth our time, your text messages are not worth our time. At least they weren't all worth CNN's time. Tell us about your text messages. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people don't think my text <laughs> messages are worth worth their time. Given I don't think your text messages are worth their time. To. Yeah, when you send them to me directly. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> I've, I've 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 audibly complained on my podcast about receiving text messages from Steve on more than one occasion. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm happy to communicate less. I can send fewer text messages if you want. Could you? Um, could you really? I, I don't I think so. I could. I will. I will. Just now, when when I make some big decision in the future, I'll be like, look, go back to the podcast we recorded on June 3rd, and that's that's your explanation. No, my text messages have gotten the attention of, uh, of, of some people. Uh, there was a CNN story published yesterday. Um, where the reporters, Jamie Gangel and her colleagues, went back and looked at the texts that Mark Meadows, former White House chief of staff, had received on January 6th, 2020, and built a story around that. Really interesting story, I think, actually. Um, not because of my text messages, but because of others. But in in their broad sweep of the text messages that went to Mark Meadows that day was one from me. Sorry, January 6th, 2021. I had the year wrong. Um, and I sent a, a text message to Meadows, uh, that evening, seven o'clock or nine o'clock that evening about a voicemail that I had gotten my hands on that was, uh, from Rudy Giuliani intended to have been left for Senator Tommy Tuberville, uh, urging the Senator after all of the, the violence as the Senate was, was back in, in session as they were continuing the proceedings, asking Tuberville to slow down the the proceedings so that Trump and his team could continue to object. So after all of the violence, they still wanted to slow this down. So I had texted Meadows um, asking him if he knew about it, if Trump asked Giuliani to call, and if uh, if the president was on board for this. And and it was like so many of my texts to Jonah. <laughs> something that went unresponded to. But the more interesting texts I have to say were the ones I sent in the in the weeks leading up to January 6th about the election because they started you could see like in you know no, November after the election you know asking about this election stuff are they serious where is it going and then you know who's in which camp um <laughs> but then I get sort of increasingly exasperated in these texts. And you can see, you know, Mark, what's the end game with this election conspiracy stuff? Where does he where do you think it goes? <laughs> I can't imagine you're as all in as POTUS seems to be. Would love to connect. And then finally said one that was like, it's hard for me to see this as anything but an attempt by the president to cheat. If I'm missing something, call me. <laughs> <laughs> 
He, he, did he not, didn't call and now you. We he turn, didn't call I'm, you. Among the things that have come out as a result of so that means you weren't missing something. The January 6th committee is we now know that Mark Meadows was not, in fact, less all in than Donald Trump was, but he was leading this campaign uh, and helping to devise the effort to to block the peaceful transfer of power. In fairness, he might have just been distracted by all the documents he was burning in the fireplace in his office. So, which, as you pointed out to me, Jonah, I mean, that was a story that that came out this week. And it, it, I mean, I bet 90% of the people listening to this podcast didn't hear about that story. And just again, for perspective purposes, stop and think about that. The chief of staff, the president of the United States burned papers. And it's a sort of a non-story burned papers, potentially in connection with all of this stuff. And, and it's a, it's a non-story, not a great place to be. And with that, what is a great place to be is this beautiful box that they've built for these baby condors. (laughs) The baby condor, I will say, looks a little bored, uh, a little sleepy, not a lot to do in the box. But nevertheless, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you in the comments section. If you're a dispatch member, it's a nice little it's a nice little condor box we've built in the comments section. Cozy, comfy. Uh, and and everyone jumps in from time to time to comment. Just for the record, they're vultures, and we use the name condor to make it sound like they're cooler or prettier, and they're not. I love vultures. And vultures are grotesque. I, they're, vultures so, are amazing. There's so many things I could say right there. Jonah, <laughs> you know, when India killed off their vultures, they had a huge problem. You need vultures in your ecosystem. Vultures are incredibly important, smart, thoughtful, caring, loving birds. How dare you, sir? Look, we need gut bacteria, too. That doesn't mean I want to watch a live cam of them. (laughs) (laughs) And and let me just say, I'm looking at the live cam right now, and there is nothing in there but dirt and feathers. Okay, the condor is in the little corner right now. He just moved to the corner. He just ate a dead trash panda, and he's digesting, because that's what they do. (laughs) (laughs) all right we will talk to you guys next week thank you everyone yeah the end